Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome to the 103rd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, birthday boy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for that. Yeah, birthday. Um, so not much planned, just a regular day at the office, really. So that's Love how that. I like it. We're going to have a team lunch for you. Yep. Have some sushi. Have some Big sushi. sushi fans. Yeah. So yeah, so it's gonna be it's gonna be a good day. I'm excited for it. So listeners, if you're listening to us on the uh, production day on the first day, send uh, Mr. McEvely an email. Wish him the best. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, before we get into it, Matt, our boy John Rahm showing up and showing out at the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines this week. I loved watching the end of that on Sunday. It yeah. was so much fun, and that to see great. him and his family and. The guy's got no entourage. Mm-hmm. It was just so fun to see it. Yeah, it was great. Him winning his first major. He just had a kid earlier this year. Um, so it was good. It was a good pick, wasn't it? Maybe we should start doing golf picks every every week. I'm, I'm in. So this week, I think, is the Travelers uh, in Connecticut. And uh, let's see. Who are you favoring? I got to try. Well, I'm one for one right now, so I got to keep this up. I'm going to say Paul Casey. All right, Paul Casey. He's uh, he's a Nike guy. He played well last week and made a little late charge, but um, he always seems to play well with the Travelers in Connecticut. So I'm gonna go with Paul Casey. See what happens. I'm with you then. Two for two would be nice. Then I could drop this whole finance thing and just be a, a golf golf analyst. Maybe? I could tell you our ratings would go through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to it. Uh, We'll go through the numbers for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 23rd. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 0.95% for the month and up 12.93% for the year. The Dow down 2% for the month and up 10.68% for the year. The NASDAQ up 3.75% 3.75% for the month and up 10.6% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 2.3% for, excuse me, up 0.25% for the month of June and up 16.6% for the year. Vanguard International ETF X United States down 2.3% for June and up 8.9% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.05%, which is the highest we've seen in a while. Two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.26%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.49%. So these longer-dated bonds, Matt, their yields have come in, the 10-year and the 20- and 30-year specifically, but we've seen short-term rates not really budge much. So, you know, in finance terms, quote-unquote, that means that the yield curve is flattening, right? Correct. And, you know, I'm just going to throw it out there for listeners so they can start connecting the dots, and this is why they listen to the podcast. With seeing these yields come in on longer-dated bonds, that bodes well for future inflation coming down. Mm -hmm. Because, listeners, what a lot of people would say is that the bond market is quote-unquote, the smart money. It takes a lot more money to move the treasury market than it does the stock market, people would say. 
And with that being said, if people were ultra concerned that inflation was going to persist and not be transitory, i.e. temporary, using the Fed's keyword there, right. then you would see bond rates not come down like this. Right. So um, I want you as listeners to kind of, you know, when Mark is going through these every week and he's talking about that 10 year treasury, you know, we started off the year close to 1.7 ish. And, um, you know, we're down to 1.5. And that's a that's a positive if you're concerned about inflation. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, last week, Matt, the Federal Reserve met on Thursday and announced that they are leaving rates unchanged and they made just minor changes to their statement. Um, several committee members moved forward with their predictions for future rate increases, with seven members now expecting at least one increase in 2022, up from four at the last meeting, and 13 members now expect rate increases in 2023, up from seven from the previous meeting. And Chairman Powell expressed optimism on the labor market in the near term and still expects inflation to moderate following this current upswing. Yep, that's, I mean, pretty much reflects what you're seeing in Treasury yields right now. Right, right. Uh, only other comment I have for the listeners, Mark, is, you know, the Fed meets every six weeks. So just kind of note that you might hear us talk about this again in six weeks, and that's just part of the, the economic calendar, we call it. Right, exactly. And I think that, you know, everyone's like, well, when interest rates go up, then the stock market's going to take a hit, right? And it's like, not necessarily, because interest rates are so low that they would have to go up a lot, in my opinion, to provide competition to stocks. I've already started my work on podcast 104 for next week. And I actually did a little bit of my own bespoke-ish data research to put some numbers behind what you just said. Okay, well, I'll leave it there and save it for next week. Yep. Uh, a lot of companies continue to face staffing shortages as the economy continues to open back up. The latest victim of this is American Airlines, and due to staffing shortages, they are canceling hundreds of flights per day and plan to do so at least through mid-July. And this is something that's that's pretty bad right now, Matt. I mean, it's bad. I mean, every flight that I take now, I feel like it's delayed. It gets canceled. The times change. It's pretty bad to get for the American specifically. It's a pilot issue. And to get these guys and gals recertified, it's a huge, huge bottleneck. Um, you know, my whole family is aviation, but me and my oldest brother's a pilot um, for one of the major airlines. And, you know, he's got buddies that, you know, um, were flying. And over the last year, because they were laid off, they had to take other jobs. And now it's like, you know, some of these guys are extremely qualified pilots and to get them back into the system, they're deciding, do I go back with my airline? Do I do another? Do I restart seniority? I'm telling you, this is going to persist with these pilot issues for several years. It's a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing it just like in the local economy, too. You made a comment the other week that, you know, in Dayton, you used to be able to, you know, show up at a restaurant and get a decent, you know, time, you know, wait for 30 minutes or an hour. But between six and eight o'clock, it usually wasn't a problem. Yep. And now you have to make these reservations way out in advance because there's so much demand. But staffing is so constrained still that. You know, you have servers and, and bartenders running around because they're the only one, two or three people that are working at that time. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, my wife and I were blessed to where we go out on a date night once a week. And Mark, the last couple of weeks, we've tried going to a local steakhouse in our community. And 
we're talking a week ago, it was an hour and a half wait. We tried this past week, two hours on a Tuesday night. Yeah. Wait. On a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. Yeah. It's tough. And I mean, I think that I just feel horrible for restaurant owners and, and bar owners because they've been hit hard on both sides of this thing. You know, they, it, you know, they, they had to shut down. They were forced to shut down and now they can't find workers. That's right. And they're competing on price for, for workers. It's a bad situation. Yeah. I'm hoping with the federal subsidy ending, at least for the state of Ohio here, uh, this at the end of this month, that you're seeing people go back to work and hopefully it, it helps this labor shortage. Yeah, I agree. Because that demand's not going to slow down anytime soon. I don't think so. Um, two travel updates uh, from TSA. Um, they're averaging over 1.8 million people a day through the airport at TSA checkpoints. And pre-COVID average was around 2.25 million. So not quite back to pre-COVID levels, but we're making our way back up there. I hope uh, I got some travel coming up in uh, July. I got a uh, weekend birding trip with my wife. I hope they have these restaurants and stuff open in these airports because, you know, yeah. when I traveled earlier this year, it felt like it was pretty heavy traffic and there's like no Nothing place to open. get food. Yeah. And my whole thing is we were in at this specific location. We we're in Philadelphia mm -hmm. going through. I think these airports have to either open their own restaurant, open one or, you know, entice these entrepreneurs to reopen their closed ones right because there's no place to get food yeah and they don't offer them on the plane yeah so what do you expect people to do yeah it's it, the whole air travel is just extremely messed up right now yeah and and i think the hard part for them is again it's just finding workers it's Absolutely. like if they want if they want to open back up they're gonna have to pay more yeah you know that's right supply and demand yeah exactly it's a funny thing um, travel activity in New York uh, continues to slowly recover as well. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority uh, noted on June 18th that daily entries broke the 13 million daily level, which is the highest yet of the COVID recovery. Prior to COVID, daily entries were averaging around 34 million a day. So there's still a long way to go for New York, but I don't know if it'll ever get back to that average just because people are going to work from home you know going forward now i mean again i'm expecting this number to continue to recover but i wonder what the average is going to be going forward yeah i mean my best guess is it could take upwards of two three years for this to quote unquote normalize it will mm -hmm. um but it's going to take a uh, time and looking at all the raw data you're seeing it take the longest for these major cities like new york yeah you really yeah, are it's gonna take time um, last but not least, according to Wallet Hub, Americans paid off $56.8 billion of credit card debt in Q1 of 2021, and that is on top of $82.1 billion that Americans paid off in 2020. So if we're on the current trajectory, we're looking at over, you know, possibly $200 billion of credit card debt being erased, which would be great for the American consumer. Think about this. We went through a tough economic environment over the last 12 months. In American consumers were disciplined, paying down debt. Mark, it's what great. country do we live in? I know. I know. It's the complete opposite of what I thought was going to happen, to be honest with you. This is great. And so what does, you know, for listeners, obviously, this is more of an investing podcast. What does that tell you about the health of the American consumer? That they're in a way better position now than they were a year ago. Absolutely. Balance sheets are stronger equity in their homes are up if they own their home right 
I'm telling you, you know, uh, stock market has done well over the past 12 months. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think the American consumer is really teed up to be on resuming its consumption ways over the next couple of years here. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be pretty strong. Um, so move on to tweets, articles, and research that caught our eye for the week. If you want to start us off. I know I always say this. I got some good ones, and I and, and, and I think I might I might. Post. I'm waiting for the day when you said I have some really bad ones today. I work hard to make sure I get good content, but um, we'll see if I can poke the bear a little bit uh, okay. with my uh, ones I selected this week. Okay. Okay, listeners. My first tweet is from uh, Brian Fernaldi, and uh, Brian's a popular finance blogger. He had an interesting tweet on June 12th. And the tweet has to do with talking about a popular stock market valuation metric known as price to earnings ratio or P.E. Mm. And a lot of people who hold this valuation near and dear might need to start expand their thinking mark. Now, for some of our listeners who are more, I think, introductory to finance, this section I'm about to go over might be a little bit over their head, and I apologize. For those listeners who are a little bit more uh, experienced, I think they're going to gain a lot of insight of what I'm about to say. Yeah, and I guess just before we go on, you know, price to earning ratio for for newer people to this industry is the company's stock price divided by their earnings per share, right? And you know, this is a very popular valuation metric that some people use to say, is this stock overvalued or is it undervalued? Or even the market. Or the market, right? Take the whole, you know, the price of the S&P 500 and divide it by the earnings of the S&P 500, right? Exactly, Mark. And it works both ways. And, and, and most people, I think, they're taught that the lower this number, the better. But as you're going to explain, that's not necessarily always the truth. And I'll add one more to that. There's a lot of people who've been trained that, well, when the market peaked in 2000, when the market peaked in 07, in prior instances of major corrections, they hold it near and dear that if the P.E. of the market gets above 25, that's a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It's not. Mm -mm. So here's what his tweet says. A stock can trade at a thousand times earnings and be undervalued. A stock can trade at five times earnings and be overvalued. He says then it took me years to embrace this concept. Mm -hmm. So what he did is he posted then this picture of five stages of a company slash stock. And I'm going to tell you the stages and how he kind of relates it. So he says kind of stage one, you know, it's in an infancy. He calls that stage research and development. And he calls the valuation metric price to hope ratio. <laughs> Makes sense to me. It's just useless at that point, right? That's right. Second one is the launch. And that's where companies are, say, valued on price to sales ratio. Mm -hmm. So right? their revenue. Watching the mm -hmm. revenue, baby. Set, the third one is the hyper growth phase. Okay. That's the price to gross profit ratio. Okay. The fourth, which is most, what most people are used to, birthday boy, mm. maturity <laughs> phase is the price to earnings ratio. And five is the declining phase 
And that's where really nothing matters. And I'm going to give some examples to listeners about this here in a second. Okay. So what most people are used to valuing a company at, again, is price to earnings. And when you take a price to earnings philosophy and you try to attach it to a hyper growth stock, which is what a lot of people attempt to do, Mark, it doesn't work. And I would like for you unfiltered to expand upon what I just said there. Yeah, I think um, it's one of those things that we're taught in, you know, academia world that the lower PE, the better, but it's not the case. And I know you're going to go through some examples, but, you know, Amazon back in the day had a PE ratio of in the 900s. And look at what it's done. People since said the it was expensive 2000s, then. If it right? gets expensive then, oh my gosh, nosebleeds now. Right. In that r- relatable it, thought process. Yeah, exactly. So it's just one of those things. If you want to use it as a tool in your toolbox, per se, then that's fine. But it's not an end all be all. I can't own this stock or I can't own this index because the PE is too high. That should not be a. thing exactly so let me go over the example that brian listed and the name i'm about to mention we have no opinion either way on this specific uh position he gave an example on mark so the example he gave he said quote on july 1st of 2004 netflix pe ratio was 1460 since that time period the stock has returned 9000 510%. He then goes to say, investors need to learn when the P.E. ratio is useful if it's the company's in its stage four, the maturity phase. But it's useless if you're trying to value a company in the stages one, two, three and five that I mentioned. And I would like to now spend a couple of minutes talking about the declining phase. Mm -hmm. Okay, anything else you want to say about? you know, a company that's on the hyper growth phase. No. Okay. On the declining phase, there are companies that are beyond what I call their mature cycle. They're in a decline. And I'm going to pick on one. And again, I'm not providing an opinion, positive or negative, other than where this company is at in my perception of their business cycle. Pitney, talking about GE. I could do GE. I was going to say Pitney Bowes. Oh, yeah, there you go. Okay. So you have a company that was so dominant in in mail. You know, they would have these systems for offices to send out mail. And guess what's happened? You've had the digital revolution, kind of like Kodak back in the day, that just completely killed their business. And on top of that, you have stamps.com. You have all these competitors to what they used to do, undercutting them on price. Mm-hmm. That's a major issue. Right. And they are into the declining phase of their business, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And here's the meaning of but you don't have a comparison to look at valuation. How do you value a company with declining profits and revenue? You don't. It's a great. Yeah, you don't. And that is something I want people to really think about. Because I think there's times where people will look at the dividend yield on a stock and sit there and say, that's fat and juicy, and I'm going to enjoy that. Mm -hmm. But if that company is more in the very, very late stages of maturity or in the declining phase, the biggest risk you have is is decay in the price of the shares, so the dividend really doesn't matter anymore. Right, exactly. And in addition to that, you know, if a 
company is consistently their earnings are consistently declining at what point does it not cover their dividend anymore and they're going to have to cut their dividend or get rid of it which usually happens look right. what happened to ge that's the that's how bankruptcy goes <laughs> that's right and the liabilities start uh piling up on you yeah so i thought that was a good example i'm gonna uh, move away to my next um uh, tweet that i want to cover mark but i think it provides a good bit that the next time I see an article about this is the price to earnings multiple on this stock or the market, it might be relatable and it might not be. Yeah, agreed. All right. My next one is a tweet from Michaela Aruet. How'd I do with that, Jenna? <laughs> I got the thumbs up from Jenna on that one. This was from June 11th. And her tweet was about investing in short term fads, Mark, are nothing new. And you know, the example she used is she used a very well-known individual, Sir Isaac Newton. Ready for this? Yeah. So Sir Isaac Newton was investing in a stock back in the 1700s called South Sea. Okay. And in, let's see here, in February of 1720, Newton invests a little bit, the chart says, he exits about three, four months later, very happy. Then all his friends were still in this. They're getting rich and really rich. The charts keeps going up. So then Isaac Newton near the top re-enters the trade with a lot of money. And guess what? He put so much of his net worth into it because it couldn't fail. And roughly nine months later, he exits broke. Mm -hmm. And this is someone who is historically extremely intelligent person right and so what is the moral of this story in your opinion don't invest in something just because your friends are doing it and don't invest and I, that's the first one but for me the second one to add to it is don't invest into something just because it's a current fad and i could sit there and go back and i'll give you examples in the last decade right we had a period earlier this decade where anything in relatable to uh, digging for gold or silver, hot. Mm -hmm. Drilling for oil, hot. We had the time where anything related to uh, cannabis, hot. hot. Crypto, no, it's crypto, hot. Yeah. You know, and it's like you keep going through these investing trends. And it's not to say you're going to always hear about the people who get lucky, who time the bottom, time the top. Mm -hmm. That is the minority to a great degree. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just never in the news. All the people that have gotten, you know, battered on the way down. So I'm going to perfectly tee this up for you. When people see these fads, they see their uh, uh, neighbors or, or their brothers or sisters getting rich off this specific investment. I want them to rem I want you, Mark, to remind the listeners to stick to their what plan stick to their plan. Yeah. And think Doesn't about matter it. that their friends buying X, Y, Z cryptocurrency that looks like a dog. Right. Okay. <laughs> It's true. And we love animals here at Jessup Wealth Management. Yes, we do. We do. I'm yeah, looking it's, at my no, dog it's right a great, now. It's a, it's, a, it's a great reminder that, you know, it's fine if you want to, you know, dabble in this stuff, but realize that, you know, it could go up a thousand percent and then it could go to zero. Stick to your plan. Avoid the noise. Yeah, agreed. We'll one talk last, about that I got bit. one last small one for you, Mark, before I turn it over to you, my friend. Okay. I have a wonderful quote uh, from Ian Castle. Okay. And he is a founder of Microcap Club. 
He said, quote, successful investing is hard work because it means disciplining your mind to do the opposite of human nature, buying during a panic, selling during euphoria and holding on when you are bored and crave action, end quote. And that last part, I think, is the toughest for most people, right, is, you know, the the majority of money, in my opinion, is made when you're sitting on your hands and you're not doing anything. Amen. Right. And I think that's hard for people to understand. And we're just in this, you know, age now where everyone thinks that they need to be doing something. They need to be buying something or they need to be selling something. And most of the time, you know, sit on your hands if you're a long term investor and you're going to come out at the other end of it just fine. Preach, baby. I love it. Um, So kind of going off of that, Matt. Michael Batnick wrote a post back in May titled, I'll buy on the next pullback. And we got into this a bit on episode 102. So I just wanted to follow up that conversation with this blog post. All right. So he says, there are countless people out there who told themselves they were going to buy Bitcoin the next time they got the opportunity to do so at lower prices. I can't prove this, but I bet good money that most of them aren't doing what they said they were going to do. If you were too scared to buy on the way up, you're definitely going to be too scared to buy on the way down. It's funny how people tell themselves, I'll buy on the next pullback without considering the news that drives prices lower will scare you away from buying them. Prices don't fall 30% for no reason. Never have, never will. Whether it's crypto or stocks or anything else, buying on weakness is way easier said than done. It's not good enough to say you'll buy the dip. You need a real plan. Write it down. Stick to it. Use real numbers. I will buy $1,000 worth of X when it hits price Y. If you don't write it down, it's never going to happen. One of Richard Feynman's greatest quotes is, you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Don't be a fool. Have a plan. I love that you brought this up. Yeah, I think it just goes with our mantra that we talk about having a plan every single time. So if you are one of those people that say you're going to buy the dip, then have a actual plan with rules structured to it. I love it. You know, this is a big reason why a lot of people and even I would say experienced investors hire professionals. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I really and, think it, it, it's a big reason. Yeah. And, and you know, this is one of the the you know, the great things about a 401k is that you're doing this, you know, every two weeks, whether the market's up 30% or down 30%, you're consistently buying, buying into it, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think back, you know, over the last couple of years, the one that still sticks with me is I remember us buying a lot of equities hand over fist on Christmas Eve in 2018. Yeah. And we made out like bandits in 19 off of that. Mm-hmm. And that was not easy trading at that time. No. I mean, people were just throwing quality names to the side. Right. It was tough. So, yeah. And I'm not telling people to, you know, throw all their liquid net worth when the market's down. No, have 20 a plan. Or 30%, have but yeah, but have a plan that a portion of it you're doing something with. Because usually if you're doing the opposite of what the majority are doing, Usually doing the right thing. If you have a time horizon, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the thing that kind of made me think about is, remember that that draft movie with Kevin Costner where he's the GM of the Cleveland Browns? Browns, yeah. And remember draft what he... night or draft room or something? Yeah, like you remember what, what he did that morning when he woke up on draft day? I don't. He went into the kitchen, took a post-it note, and wrote down, no matter what happens today, draft this person. So then it goes through his day about all these other teams trying to influence his decision, put carrots out there. The owner was demanding he draft somebody different, et cetera. And it got down to the final second. He took the piece of paper out of his pocket 
and it said, as a reminder, no matter what happens today, draft this person, mm-hmm. and he ends up doing it, following what he promised himself he that's would do. That's great correlation. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, you can set, it's so easy these days to set like price alerts for stuff. So if you're one of those people that you want to, you know, you have a long time horizon, you want to put money in when the market pulls back, you know, you set an alert for when it's 5% off the highs or 10% off the highs or 30% off the highs and follow that sticky note, like you just said. Yep. Um, the next, I'm interested to get your opinion on this, Matt, right. is um, an article in the Wall Street Journal titled Fidelity's, Fidelity's Pitch to American Teens, No Fee Brokerage Accounts. Um, and this is by Justin Bayer. So Fidelity plans to open the door to a new generation of investors who will be able to trade stocks even before they learn how to drive or head to college. <laughs> Fidelity said it will issue debit cards and offer investing and savings accounts to 13 to 17-year-olds whose parents or guardians also invest with the firm. The accounts will let teens buy and sell U.S. stocks, Fidelity mutual funds, and many exchange-traded funds. The service won't charge account fees or commissions for online trading. In the case of Fidelity's new teen offering, the parent will enter into the brokerage contract with Fidelity. Once open, the account is fully transferred to the teenager, said Jennifer Samalis, Senior Vice President of Customer Acquisition and Loyalty, meaning the ability to ex- execute trades. Uh, the parents retain the right to close the account at any time and may sign up for alerts on the child's transactions, a Fidelity spokesperson said. Youth account holders won't be permitted to trade options or borrow on margin to amplify their bets, he said. Deposits are capped at $30,000 annually. Uh, that's very good. I'm Thank very happy God. with that. I could that. just see one blowing up an account with and taking the parents with them. stipulation, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, that's very good. What are your thoughts on this? You know what this is to me? As you were talking, this is a Pepsi move. And let me explain this. Okay. Okay. So in the 90s and the 2000s, Pepsi took a different approach to combat Coke. What they started to do, they started to go around to high schools and universities. And they sat there and said, we want exclusivity and the vending machines in your school to be our product. We will cut you a check. The whole premise was they want to get them started used to growing up and using and enjoying Pepsi than Coke. So when they get out of college and high school, what are they going to be buying for them and their family? Pepsi. So I want you, next time, listeners, you are walking around a school or a university, I would even throw out there that 75% of the time, it's going to be Pepsi. Mm-hmm. I think Fidelity is doing the same damn thing. Yeah. I think they move. are trying to get people used to Fidelity when they're young. They're looking at the demographics of the asset transition that's going to be happening down the road. And they're thinking, where's the path of least resistance? They're playing the long game. Where can we get the loyalty? And I think that's they're, they're, they're pulling a Pepsi move on this. Yeah, I agree. Now, relatable to getting these this demographic investing experience, that's encouraging. Mm-hmm. They're not allowing margin or options. Encouraging. However, you and I both know there's um, exchange-traded funds out there that have leverage. Yeah. It's concerning that they still have access to that type of stuff. I like that they're going to be getting educated, but I think it is a savage long-term move by Fidelity, <laughs> and I applaud it. Yeah, it's a good business move. I think on the educational side, I think I like it. 
because in my opinion, you learn by doing. So, you know, I think especially over the past year, it's out there that, you know, trading stocks and all that stuff is easy. And I think it's going to take a couple blow ups for people to realize, oh, this isn't that easy. So, you know, you make a couple trades and you buy some stocks that, you know, and you get burned or the market, you know, comes in by 10 or 15 percent. It's going to force these people to say, hey, I got to put a little bit more time and effort into this stuff rather than just pick a name that I see on Twitter that's going up and up and up, you know, to have to be successful in investing. Yeah. Um, So I think it's a good learning experience for people. But, you know, again, you just have to be careful with it and. I like that they're capping it at $30,000 because I'm sure there are going to be people out there that lose it all. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. But from a learning standpoint, I I like the move from fidelity standpoint. I think it's a hell of a smart move. Like you long term, long term. It's smart to keep them sticky. Got to keep them sticky. Get them used to the platform. Yeah. And and again, fidelity's platform is pretty good, I think. Yeah. Um, And it's easy to use. So once they get these people ingrained in that, I think that they're, the chances of them leaving is is less and less. Yep, I agree. Um, next was a blog post by Morgan Housel titled "How to Do the Long Term." <clears throat> so he, you know, points out a couple of things that you need to be able to handle if you want to be a long term thinker, right? Ooh. So he says, long-term thinking is easier to believe in than accomplish. Most people know it's the right strategy in investing, careers, relationships, anything that compounds. But saying I'm in it for the long run is a bit like standing at the base of Mount Everest, pointing to the top and saying, that's where I'm heading. Well, that's nice, but now comes a test. To do the long term effectively, you have to come to terms with a few points. Number one, the long run is just a collection of short runs you have to put up with. Hmm. Saying that you have a 10-year time horizon doesn't exempt you from all the nonsense that happens during the next 10 years. Everyone has to experience the recessions, bear markets, and meltdowns, the surprises at the same time. So rather than assuming long-term thinkers don't have to deal with the nonsense, the question becomes, how can you endure a never-ending parade of nonsense? And I think this is something that isn't talked about a lot is, you know, me and you and everyone in our industry is always, you know, pounding the table on long-term, long-term, long-term. But like Morgan says, you know, through that long term, you have to deal with all the BS in between, right? Absolutely. So it's not like it's going to be easy peasy. Yeah, I'm focused on 10 years out when the market corrects by 50% or there's a pandemic, then your mind's going to be going in circles. Yeah, I mean, right? last questioning year, if you're doing the right thing. Yeah, last year, the market sold off one third peak to trough in a two and a half month time period and came right back. And there was a lot of people that panic sold and didn't get back in the market. Yeah, that's an example. Yeah. Yeah. He says, number two is your belief in the long run isn't enough. Your investors, coworkers, spouses and friends have to sign up for the ride. An investment manager who loses 40 percent can tell his investors it's OK. We're in it for the long run and believe it. But the investors may not believe it. They might bail. The firm might not survive. Then even if the manager turns out to be right, it doesn't matter. No one's around to benefit. The same thing happens when you have the guts to stick it out, but your spouse doesn't. Mm. Or when you have a great idea that will take time to prove, but your boss and coworkers aren't as patient. Mm. Yep. People mock how much short-term thinking there is in the financial industry, and they should. But I also get it. The reason so many financial professionals stray towards short-termism 
is because there's only one way to run a viable business when customers flee at the first sign of trouble. But the reason customers flee is often because investors have done such a poor job communicating how investing works, what their strategy is, and what they should expect as an investor, and how to deal with the inevitable volatility and cyclicality. So, I don't know. I just think that we make it sound easier than it is to be long-term thinkers. I think that's a very well-put statement. Um, and like Morgan said, it's not just with investing, it's with anything in life, you know? Um, you know, a, a goal for me is to eventually move back into Oakwood, right? And have the house that, you know, Kenzie and I raise a family in. Um, but we're still dealing with, you know, that we're going to look at houses and then we like a house, we want to make an offer, it's already pending. So you're dealing with that short term noise. And that's just one one example. But Absolutely. All areas of life, you know, we're doing this each and every day. But at the same time, you know, we just got to keep convincing ourselves that we do have a plan in place and we have to stick to that plan, even though we're going to go through peaks and troughs of of emotions and and financial stresses and um you know stresses that happen in the economy um so if you dig deeper into the article he talks about you know investing during the pandemic and investing you know around 9-11 during the terrorist attacks so you're going to have these short-term you know noise events that you just have to dig through and keep your 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 mind focused on the long term but I'm not going to lie. It's not easy to do. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's not easy for us to do what we do and stay, I think, balanced emotionally mm -hmm. and let alone for, you know, somebody who doesn't do this for a living. Yeah. It's Agreed. hard. Um, <clears throat> I know we're running a little long, Matt, so I'm going to cut the financial planning topic of the week a little short. But this was an article in The Wall Street Journal um, at the end of April titled What's in Biden's American Families Plan? From Taxes to Child Care by Gabriel and Richard Rubin. So if people want to check that out, they can go to the Wall Street Journal and look at this. I just we, I've touched on this before, but I just want to touch on a, on a couple of things right now. OK, um, so uh, changes in this act. Um, talking about ordinary income tax rates going up, because that's a that's a big topic in the news these days. Um, so. They're only expecting the top tax rate to increase. So it would rise from 39.6% from 37%. Currently, that applies to taxable income above $523,000 for individuals and $628,000 for married couples. But it isn't clear when those changes would take effect. And then they also asked a question about uh, taxes on dividends and long-term capital gains. And under this plan, they would increase more sharply for households making more than $1 million from today's 23.8% top capital gains tax rate to 43.4%, including a 3.8% tax on investment income. According to the administration, that would affect 0.3% of households right now. Um, and then the other big thing in here is the structural changes on how capital gains are taxed at death. And we've talked about this a little bit before, Matt, but currently the people that own appreciated assets owe capital gains taxes only when they sell. And if they die, the entire gain goes untouched by the income tax. Their heirs pay capital gains tax only if and when they sell and only the gain since the original owner's date of death, 
which is also known as stepped-up cost basis. Mm -hmm. So the Biden plan would treat a bequest other than a charitable donation as a sale for tax purposes. So an individual who bought a small business for $2 million and dies when it's worth $9 million would have a $7 million capital gain on his final tax return. The Biden plan would offer a $1 million per person exemption to reduce that taxable gain to $6 million in this example. The existing inclusions of up to $500,000 for the principal residents of married couples would also remain. So I think that's going to be the big one, um, you know, to see how, you know, capital gains are going to be treated because that's going to that's going to make a lot of people very unhappy, especially with that wealth transition. I talked about demographics earlier to the next generation. There's a lot of money over the next two decades moving from one generation to the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about real estate? They say, in addition, he would limit what are known as like kind exchanges in which real estate investors defer capital gains taxes when they swap properties. That benefit would be capped at 500,000 and that would change how many commercial real estate transactions are done. So people don't know, you know, if you have an investment property or a, a place that you rent out and you sell it, but you move those proceeds into a house of like or a property of like kind, then you can avoid paying capital gains taxes on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they're looking at changes to that as well. So just a heads up for real estate people that that might be something that's coming down the pike. Yep, that they should probably keep their ears to the ground on that one. Yep. Um, well, I think we went a little over Matt, but is there anything else you want to leave uh, before we cut this one off? Into the quarter next week, might be some volatility going in the last couple of trading days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. I'm teeing up some really good data about how the market has performed in previous rate hikes and or times where the Fed has reduced liquidity. So I'm prepping for that next week. Okay. We'll see everybody next week. And thank you for listening to the 103rd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope to see you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.